Greetings in Jesus' name this morning. It's a special privilege to be here. As I look out over this room, a flood of memories come back. Norman mentioned that I grew up in this church and uh, Sunday after Sunday would sit in these pews and uh, just a a lot of, of blessing and good memories from those days. And as I think about that, I, I um, have some mixed feelings being here today. Uh, on one hand, it feels like home. I see a lot of familiar faces. Um, the building even smells the same way I remember it. <laughs> but I feel like a stranger, too. Um, even the familiar faces look older than I remembered them. And there are a lot of new faces, and even the building is somewhat different. But be that as it may, we serve the same Lord and we preach the same gospel, and I hope that the message today can be a blessing and encouragement to you. I'd like to begin with a question today for you to consider. What are you afraid of? What are you afraid of? Recently, Chapman University did a study on people's most common fears, and the list included things like ghosts, the dark, Strangers, confined spaces, deep water, spiders, snakes, heights, and of course, public speaking. I don't know what your greatest fears are. Probably depends on who you are, your personal experience, maybe even your personality, probably your age. If you're a young child, you might be afraid of big dogs. If you're an older person, You might be afraid of x-rays or biopsies. For a message today, I'd like to explore a story in the Scripture, a story about Jesus and his disciples, and a time when the disciples were afraid. Hopefully, you still have your Bibles at Mark chapter 4. I would like to read at the end of the chapter, starting at verse 35. Mark 4, verse 35. And the same day, when even was come, he saith unto them, Let us pass over unto the other side. And when he had sent away the multitude, they took him, even as he was, in the ship, and there were also with him other little ships. And there arose a great storm of wind, and the waves beat into the ship, so that it was now full. And he was in the hinder part of the ship, asleep on a pillow. And they awake him, and say unto him, Master, Carest thou not that we perish? And he arose and rebuked the wind and said unto the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. And he said unto them, Why are ye so fearful? How is it that ye have no faith? And they feared exceedingly and said to one another, What manner of man is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? Now before we get into this passage, I want to say that this is an often allegorized passage of Scripture. And by that I mean the modern Christian reads this story and uh, the first thing they ask is, Where is Jesus in your storm? Or maybe, what is your storm? 
And allergizing this passage is not a, a bad way to handle it. In fact, I would like to allegorize it today. But before we go there, I want to say that the Scripture, as we approach Scriptures like this, we should remember that the Scripture has two layers of meaning. First of all, it has immediate meaning, and then it has ultimate meaning. And immediate meaning means that it, has me- it had meaning for the person who wrote it, for the people that were in the story, for the intended original audience. There was meaning in that. And sometimes we forget about that as we allegorize it for ourselves. And I think we do the best job of applying the scriptures to our lives when we first take a little time to think about the setting of of this scripture and the people that were in it and their experience and ask the question, why did Mark write this story? And what was the point that he was trying to make to his audience? So let's take a closer look at what happened here. Norman read the first part of the chapter, and verse 1 reminds us that he was teaching by the seaside. This was early in Jesus' ministry. He would become, already become a great teacher. He was doing miracles, and he had a great following, and whenever he, wherever he went, multitudes would gather around to hear his teaching. And it appears like he was teaching all day long. There was such a great crowd that he got into a boat and moved away from the shore just a bit for a better view and better acoustics, and he taught these crowds. And then the story that I read happens at the end of that day, that long day of teaching and telling parable after parable. Verse 35 tells us that Jesus said at the end of that day, let's go over to the other side, the other side of the Sea of Galilee. I think the other side was probably about seven or eight miles away, and so if they were rowing or sailing this ship, I'm guessing it would have taken several hours to get to the other side, possibly arriving after dark. Verse 36 tells us they took him in the ship even as he was. Now, I'm not exactly sure what that phrase means, but I'm guessing Jesus was tired and Jesus was hungry. But I think the phrase might mean they, they left right from the shore without getting out of the boat. Same boat that he taught from, they just turned and started rowing or sailing across the sea. But something profound happens then. Verse 37, a great windstorm. Now, these men were experts in a boat. They were fishermen. They knew how to operate a boat. But in this situation, they were afraid. They were terribly afraid. This was a bad storm. I don't know if you've ever experienced a severe windstorm firsthand. I haven't very often, um, but I do have a memory from this community when I was a boy about a windstorm. I don't remember exactly which year. It's probably in the mid-'80s. I was just a, a young boy, maybe 8 or 10 years old at this, at this point, and um, Woke up one morning after a terrible thunderstorm at night and heard my parents talking about a tornado that had touched down in the area. Uh, Some of you older ones might remember that uh, Dan Esch's chicken house was destroyed in that tornado. And so the word was getting around and people were gathering to help with the cleanup. And my dad took me and my older brothers over to Dan Esch's farm there on Harvest Road. And and, uh, as we pulled into that scene, it's still etched in my mind. I 
never seen anything like this before. Of course, there was people around and big machinery was already starting with the cleanup, but just piles of twisted sheet metal from the roofing and siding of this building and splintered rafters everywhere. And most of the chickens had been collected by now, but there was a few strays running around in the field next uh, to the chicken house. It was just, it was a, it was a scene of devastation. And in my little mind, it, it impressed on me the, the power and, the, and the, the tremendous fierceness, the damage that a windstorm can cause. But if you look closely at this passage, it wasn't the wind that the disciples were afraid of. It says that the, the waves were breaking into the boat and the boat was getting full. What was going to happen next? When a boat fills with water, it cannot float. And I doubt that these disciples had life jackets or lifeboats with them. This ship was going down and they were going to drown. That's what was happening. Now, I'm not an expert boatman, but I do enjoy canoeing. I've, I own a canoe, and I've been canoeing since I was a teenager. And there's, there are two ways in which you can sink a canoe. One is to capsize it. That is when the canoe flips over. Sometimes just uh, careless people in the canoe can cause that to happen. Another way you can sink a canoe is to swamp it. When you swamp a canoe, the canoe fills with water and just simply goes straight down. This can happen if you're out in the middle of a lake and it gets windy and waves are splashing into your canoe and it starts to fill with water. It can also happen in a raging river when you're going through rapids and the rapids are splashing into the boat. There's two things you can do if your boat starts to swamp. One is to get to shore very quickly before it goes down and then when you're on shore, you can empty the water and, and go again. Another thing is to bail water. If you have a bucket or a container a cup or a scoop of some sort, you can start to scoop that water and throw it over the side and, and try to keep the water going out as fast as it's coming in, and you can keep that, that canoe afloat. I'm not sure what the disciples were doing at this point, but I'm guessing they were doing one of those two things, either rowing furiously to try to get to land, at least close enough to land that if the boat would go down, they could swim to shore. Or maybe they were bailing water. I don't know if they had any containers. And they were trying to get that water out of the boat because it was filling, and they knew that if too much water came to the boat, it would go down. So they were terribly afraid. I have no idea how Jesus stayed asleep in all of this. But he was in control, and he had nothing to be afraid of. I don't know why the disciples waited so long to alert Jesus, but they came to him, says that Jesus was in the hinder part of the ship, the back of the ship, the stern, and he was laid on a pillow. He had a cushion. He had made himself a nest. He, he was intending to sleep and get some rest. The disciples came and waked him and said, Master. Now, if you look at the Greek, what they were saying was teacher. Some of your versions may say teacher or rabbi. They addressed him as a teacher. And this is exactly what Jesus was. If you look at the previous part of the chapter, he was teaching. He was teaching the people all day long. He was a famous teacher. They addressed him as teacher, and I think that's significant. That's who they knew Jesus to be, their teacher. 
but I don't think they yet knew him as the Son of God, the Messiah, the master of the universe, the creator. They said, don't you care? His sleep appeared to them as a lack of care, a lack of attention, a lack of being able to help them with their problems. I wonder what they expected him to do. Perhaps just help them row or bale water. Maybe they did expect him to do a miracle. They had seen some of his miracles already, mostly healing people. But I don't think they had seen him yet address the elements. I don't doubt that they were surprised when he stood and he rebuked the wind. He didn't plead with the wind. He didn't make requests. He didn't say nice things to the wind. He rebuked it. I think this rebuke was stern and loud and with authority. Peace, be still. This word peace is not the same word that Jesus used when he spoke to his disciples and said, peace be to you. This is not shalom. This word peace means be quiet. I have a house full of teenagers right now, and sometimes at supper time, everyone's talking, no one's listening, and it gets really loud. I start to get a headache, and I say, quiet! I'm getting a headache. I can't hear anything. Peace, be still, be quiet. Hush. And it became still, just like that. But then Jesus does something interesting. He turns and he rebukes his disciples. And he says, why were you afraid? Where is your faith? Jesus connected their fear with their lack of faith, lack of faith in him. What did Jesus expect them to do? What would faith have done in this boat? Just calmly and contentedly kept on rowing? Got down on your knees in the water in the bottom of the boat and began praying? What would faith have done? Well, Mark doesn't tell us, but he does tell us that the disciples lacked faith. And because of that, they were afraid. And because of that, Jesus rebuked them. Now notice their response. If they were afraid before, it says now, they, were, they feared exceedingly. Now, why, after the storm was calm, were they seemingly even more afraid? It's a question for you to ponder. I think the next phrase gives us a little hint. They said, what manner of man is this? They realized that they were in the boat with not just a rabbi, not just a great teacher. They were in the boat with God Almighty, the creator of the universe. The winds and the sea obeyed him. And that made them afraid. Mark ends the story with that question. What manner of man is this? And I believe that was the point that Mark was trying to make here. The main question in this story is not, will Jesus get you through this storm? The main question is, who is Jesus? 
what kind of man is this? And when he, calms the when he calms the storm, when he calms your storm, you have not just evaded another hardship. You have met God. You have known him in a deeper way, and your faith has grown. Storms open our eyes. Storms show us what we fear and who we trust. Yes, Jesus cares about your storm, and yes, he can calm it, but more he wants you to know him. He wants you to trust him. He wants you to obey him. He doesn't just want to do something with your circumstances. He wants to do something with you. And that day on the Sea of Galilee, he wanted to do something in the hearts of his disciples. He wanted faith to grow. I'd like to think a little bit now of a few other biblical examples of people who met God in a storm. One of the first ones I think about is another man in a boat, asleep in a storm, Jonah. I don't know that these stories in the Bible are intended to be compared with each other, but it, uh, I think it's interesting that there are a lot of similarities in both stories, the one that I just read and the story of Jonah, the storms were life-threatening. And they caused serious panic in the boat while one person was oblivious and asleep. In both stories, there were people in the boat who lacked faith, and they called on God only after they ran out of options. In both accounts, these storms were a kind of preparation, a test of faith. In both stories, God clearly calmed the storm in response to a specific human action. In both stories, the calm was instant and dramatic and an obvious demonstration of God's power. In both stories, the miraculous calm resulted in godly fear and worship and obedience. In both stories, the people in the story encountered God in a way that changed them. And if you continue to read the story of Jonah, the chapter 2 is Jonah's prayer from the belly of the whale. And it's a beautiful prayer. And it's an encounter with God in the belly of a fish. And that encounter with God resulted in Jonah's service and obedience and his sacrifice to God. But there's more. What about the story of Job? Job encountered a whirlwind. Turn to Job 38. Job 38, verse 1, The Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, and then God goes on for two chapters asking Job questions. And if you page to chapter 40, Job finally gets a chance to say a few things. Verse 3, then Job answered the Lord and said, Behold, I am vile. What shall I answer thee? I will lay mine hand upon my mouth. Once I have spoken, but I will not answer. Yea, twice, but I will proceed no further. 
Then the Lord answered unto Job out of the whirlwind. So God speaks again through a storm of wind to Job. And God goes on for two more chapters asking Job questions. Chapter 42, Job finally gets a chance to speak again. And this is what he says. Then Job answered the Lord and said, I know that thou canst do everything. Job had encountered God in that whirlwind, and now he knew something that he didn't know before. I know that thou canst do everything, and that no thought can be withholden from thee. Verse 5, I have heard of thee by the hearing of the ear, but now mine eye seeth thee. Wherefore, I abhor myself and repent and dust and ashes. In Job's storm, he met God. He saw God, and his response was to abhor himself and repent. He laid his hand upon his mouth. There was another man that met God in a storm of wind. Turn to 1 Kings 19. Elijah. 1 Kings 19, verse 9. And he came thither unto a cave and lodged there. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, and he said unto him, What doest thou here, Elijah? And he said, I have been very jealous for the Lord God of hosts, for the children of Israel have forsaken thy covenant, thrown down thine altars, and slain thy prophets with the sword. And I, even I only, am left, and they seek my life to take it away. Elijah felt like he was facing death. His life was at stake here. And he said, Go forth and stand upon the mount before the Lord. And behold, the Lord passed by, and a great strong wind rent the mountains and break in pieces the rocks before the Lord. Now, I've never heard of a storm that tears mountains and breaks rocks. This must have been some storm. And Elijah witnessed it. But the Lord was not in the wind, and after the wind an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake, and after the earthquake a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire, and after the fire a still small voice. And it was so when Elijah heard it that he wrapped his face in his mantle and went out, and stood in the entering in of the cave, and behold, there came a voice to him and said, What doest thou hear, Elijah? And the story goes on. The Lord speaks to Elijah and gives him instructions. And through that storm experience and hearing the voice of God after the storm, Elijah found a new way forward. He was no longer running for his life. He was obeying the command of God. The psalmist in Psalm 46.10 says, Be still. The same words that Jesus used in the boat. Peace, be still. Be still and know that I am God. And there the psalmist connects the idea of calming with knowing. You need to be calm before you can know. The disciples met God in the boat that day, and they knew in a deeper way the real Jesus 
that he is not just teacher, but he is master and Lord. Master of the wind, the waves, all of nature, creator, sustainer. Jesus is the only one with authority over nature. Nature knows God's voice because it's the same voice that spoke it into existence. John 1 says that Jesus was in the beginning and that all things were made by him. Genesis 1 says that God said, let there be light. He said, let there be fishes. He said, let us make man. He spoke the world into existence. Yes, nature knows God's voice because he is the master of nature. But he's not just the master of nature. And in the passage, in the, in the chapter part that Norman read, Jesus is the master of truth. He taught the people in parables. He taught them truth in a way they had never heard it before. And they came out in droves to hear truth being taught for the first time. Jesus is the master of truth. There's a beautiful verse in verse 34. It talks about... As Jesus, it talks about Jesus using parables to teach and how that... Um, I'm sorry, I lost my place. Uh, read verse 33 and 34. With many such parables spake he the word unto them as they were able to hear it. So Jesus was wise enough to know that people understood things in certain ways, and he spoke in such a way that they were able to understand and verse 34 says, with, but without a parable, he spake he not unto them. He used parables exclusively in all of his teaching. And when they were alone, he expounded all things to his disciples. The ESV says, when they were alone, he explained everything. Jesus is the master of truth. He can explain everything. Colossians 2.3 says, In him are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Yes, Jesus is the master of nature. He's the master of the truth. But he's the master of more. Does anyone know what happened after Jesus arrived at the other side of the sea? He met a man filled with a legion of demons. And he cast those demons out. And he healed that man. And he changed that man's life dramatically. Jesus is the master of demons and the master of men. Marianne Baker, in her hymn, Master the Tempest is Raging, beautifully captures that idea. The winds and the waves shall obey thy will. Peace be still. Whether the wrath of the storm-tossed sea or demons, or men, or whatever it be. No waters can swallow the ship where lies the master of ocean and earth and skies. They all shall sweetly obey thy will. Jesus is the master of nature, of truth, of men, of demons, of all. And he's the master of you, his disciple. It's appropriate for us to fear him, to obey him, to worship him, to trust him, to 
in Marianne Baker's words, sweetly obey his will. Let me ask you again, what are you afraid of? I don't know exactly when that survey was taken, but I'm guessing it was taken before 2020 because the list didn't include things like civil unrest, incurable diseases, supply shortages, kidnappings, and other things that we could list. And I don't even know what kinds of storms you've endured personally, what kinds of storms have raged in this community or even in this church. Our world, our nation, our communities have had some serious storms. But according to Mark, the most important question is not, what are you afraid of? It is, who is Jesus? Let's ask with the disciples, what manner of man is this? What manner of man is this? Is he the master of all? Is he my master? Can I trust him in the storm? Can we, like Job, when we finally see him, say, you can do everything? Can we put our hand over our mouth and repent when we realize that we're face to face with the master of the universe? Can we, like Elijah, move our attention from a storm that tears the mountains apart to hearing a still small voice? And when that voice speaks to us, we go and we obey. Can we, like Marianne Baker, decide to sweetly obey his will? You see, Marianne Baker had a story, and Karen Davidson in in a book, Our Latter-day Hymns, records a bit of her story. And she says, Marianne Baker was left an orphan when her parents died of tuberculosis. She and her sister and brother lived together in Chicago. And when her brother was stricken with the same disease that had killed her parents, the two sisters gathered together the little money that they had and sent him to Florida to recover. But within a few weeks, he died. And the sisters did not have sufficient money to travel to Florida for his funeral, nor to bring his body back to Chicago. Of this trial, Baker said, I became wickedly rebellious at this dispensation of divine providence, and I said in my heart that God did not care for me or for mine. But the master's own voice stilled the tempest in my unsanctified heart and brought it to the calm of a deeper faith and a more perfect trust. Marianne Baker met the Lord in her storm, and she decided in her heart to sweetly obey his will. Storms happen to all of us, but I want you to remember that they are an opportunity for a personal encounter with God, a personal encounter that tests your faith and to cause you to fear him more than the storm. May God bless the message. Please stand with me as I pray. Dear Father in heaven, 
we come to you today as your disciples, and we ask you to fill our hearts with faith so that when storms come, we can look to you, we can trust you, we can obey you, and we can know you in a deeper way. Please go with us through our lives as we go from here, as we encounter storms. We want to be faithful to you. In Jesus' name, amen.